I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that means more, matters more to me than, than to know Him and to follow Him. Sometimes knowing Him and following Him is hard. Amen? <laughs> Amen. So Jesus said, you're blessed when you mourn. Do you get that? Does that make sense? He says you're blessed when you're poor. How in the world can that be? Jesus said you're blessed when you are persecuted for following him, for having faith in him. There's just so many aspects of knowing Christ and following Christ that in the moment of a circumstance just is hard to understand. And it proves to be quite difficult. It can shake us down to the core of our being. And so what I want to do this morning, because we're talking about confessions that are worth repeating, I want to recall for you three very familiar biblical accounts where the person in the story makes a confession of faith. And what I want us to do is I want to borrow, I want us to, to, to take from that biblical person their confession and make it our own. And so these are familiar stories to you, but I, I want to ask you to treat them a little bit differently than normal. Treat it not so much just like a little Bible story, but treat it like a case study. If you were studying a case to figure out uh, what was true here, what was at work here, what are the things that can be seen and the things that were not seen, but just as real even though they were not seen? What impact and import does that have to me? And the first one that I want to talk to you about is one that I've talked about way probably too often in here, but I, I can't help it. I, I just keep going back to Joseph, the son of Jacob, whose story is found in Genesis near the end of the book. And so you'll recall when he's a teenager... God gives him a vision. And he begins to see things in his head and in his heart, in his dreams, about what God might be up to with him, that someday God's going to give him power and influence, so much so that even his ten older brothers and his parents, other family members, will be bowing down before him. Now, his brothers despised him because of that dream and vision and because he had been favored by his father. And so, as you know the story, at one point they betray him, they beat him, they sell him as a slave to some traveling uh, traders that are passing through. And these traders take him to Egypt, and there they sell him to an Egyptian soldier, captain by the name of Potiphar. And then in Potiphar's house, he just faithfully serves, he just does what he's supposed to be doing, he's just minding his own business, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And he says no to her advances, and he seeks to remain faithful to God and to his master, his boss, Potiphar. And so she, in her uh, feelings of rejection, accuse him of rape. He's arrested. He's thrown into jail. And there he is going to serve out a life sentence in jail. Now, do you get this? I mean, I know you know the rest of the story, but if, if you just see it up to this point... 
What is that all about? God gives you a vision. God stirs your heart. God causes you to dream about certain things that He's going to be doing in you and through you. And yet every life scenario uh, paints a picture that is contrary to the dream. And of course, at some point, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, discovers Joseph in prison, pulls him out, and through a, a number of circumstances, then elevates him to something akin to being a prime minister, the second in power of all of Egypt, so that eventually he's reunited with his family, who are now in Palestine, but they're starving to death. There's a severe famine. And so they hear there's food in Egypt, and they come to Egypt to get food, and who do they have to buy food from but long-lost Joseph. And, of course, he immediately has compassion toward them. He forgives them. He wants to reconcile with them. He wants to bless them. But these brothers are just convinced this is too good to be true. He's setting us up. He's got to be wanting to take vengeance out on us. That's what we would do if we were in his place. And so they live with this kind of nervous uneasiness all the time, day in and day out, until finally they inquire of Joseph, okay, when are you going to get us? And in chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph says, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Okay, case study. What are we talking about here? We're talking theology. We're talking about revelation. We're talking about getting a glimpse of who is God and what is God like and what is God doing. And of course, we're, we're over a couple of decades here of Joseph being a, a slave, of being uh, unjustly treated, of being condemned to life in prison. You know, one tragic thing after another. And the entire time, God is at work to do something redemptive. Now, it's hard to trust him when you don't understand what he's up to. But somehow Joseph got to a point in his life where he could see God is doing something redemptive. And as you know, his family, Jacob's family, becomes the nation Israel, and it's from the nation Israel that Jesus Christ is born into this world. He's not only a part of God's saving work for his family, but for of all humanity, because he's a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now fast forward about 2,000 years, and let's look at case study number two. This is recorded in the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter, and on one occasion Jesus is walking with his disciples... And as they are uh, going about the city, they come upon a begging blind man. And the disciples ask Jesus one of the most penetrating and profound theological questions that we can ask. They see this blind man who is begging, who has been blind from birth. He was born that way. And they inquire of Jesus... Was this man born blind because of the sins of his parents or because of his own sins? 
Now, what's the implication of that theology? The implication of that theology is that if there's any kind of defect that someone is born with, that's probably due to sin. Was this an instance of the sin of his parents or of his own sin? Now, we get that mostly, don't we, that our sin can cause birth defects and problematic things for our children and for other children. I mean, if a mom has uh, a drinking thing going on or a drug thing going on or gets an STD while she's pregnant, then that child's more than likely going to be born with one or more defects. And so sin can cause that kind of thing. But Jesus said it was neither the sin of the parents or of the child that he was born blind. Jesus said God had him born blind so that God might gain great glory. Now let that soak in. And at that, Jesus then takes some dirt, spits on it, makes it mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, tells some people attending to him to help him get to the pool of Siloam and to wash his eyes. And when he does, he can see. For the first time in all of his life, he sees the water. He sees the faces of people around him. He sees the sky above him. He sees a bird in flight. For the first time in his life, and everyone there takes note of what God can and does do. And God is glorified. And a little bit later, some religious leaders who had kind of had it in for Jesus corner this blind man and say, so what happened? Were you just pretending to be blind? He goes, no, no, I was really blind. There were witnesses that said he was born blind. His entire life he's been blind. We testified to the fact that he was blind. Okay, well then, by what power did this man bring you sight? Because it happened on the Sabbath, after all. He must not be a holy man. He must be working of the devil. And this man, the blind man, says... I don't understand everything about Jesus, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. That's all I know. So when we talk about confessions, and today I'm leading us to a point, I'm making the case for the fact that we can confess, I will trust Christ without understanding everything. Let us consider two little pieces of revelation that I feel like God's giving us up to this point. And one is this. Even though I don't understand everything that He's up to or what these circumstances are about, most often they have something to do with His redemptive plan. He's doing something with my circumstance that will lead to or work for a sinner who needs to be saved to find life in Christ. Somehow, my circumstance is going to be working to that end. And the second thing we see 
It's going to have something to do with His glory. It's going to have something to do with exalting Him, lifting Him up in, in such a way that a distracted world will have their attention grasped and they'll take some note of God. And so I just pause to ask us at this point, are those sufficient reasons to trust Him when we don't understand everything? The fact that my hardships might be about someone's salvation or someone's seeing the glory of God, is that sufficient enough for me to keep trusting Him when my circumstances more or less suck? Is that sufficient? Now, let me bring it home a little bit. Because I know it's, it's the case in the room. What if I'm following Christ? What if I'm trusting Christ? What if I'm seeking to give my heart to Him as best I know how? And, and I'm seeking to walk in His will and walk in His way. And I get sick. And maybe it's a very uh, kind of dark diagnosis. Is he still good? Does he still love me? Is he still about redemptive and glorifying things through my difficulty? What about... I'm out and I had this car accident and a drunk driver hits me and I'm maimed for the rest of my life. And I have been following him. I've been serving him. I have been yielding my life to him. And now I'm maimed for the rest of my life. Is he still good? Is he still trustworthy? What if... Something happens to my children. And some wacko gets hold of my child and brutalizes my child. And I've been faithful. I've been following. I've been serving. I've sought to, to honor God with my life. And what happened to my child, God? Can you trust Christ without understanding everything? You see, Joseph's story is not just some little Bible story in an illustrated children's book. This is our story. The blind man's story is our story. People who came to a point and said, you know, I don't get it all, I don't understand it all, but I will trust Him. All I know is that He's real. And then He makes a real difference. In this world. That's all I know. So, I want to bring this to a head and a close with a, an examination of John chapter 11. This is our third case study, and I'm going to ask you to read along with me as we look at the text. Uh, open your Bible and look at it with me because we're going to kind of do a little commentary along the way to see what this thing is all about. Now, this is. 
This is in a, a time in the life of Jesus where he is probably two days' journey from a little town called Bethany, which is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. And there he's got these beloved friends, a guy by the name of Lazarus, and he's got Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary. And apparently, uh, historically, Jesus had not only been friends with them, but had stayed in their home many times. They were kind of like second family to him. And on this occasion, Lazarus gets sick, and it looks like he's going to die. And Jesus is about two days' journey away. And so the sisters have heard where Jesus is, and they send a messenger to Jesus to say, Lazarus is sick, more or less to say, will you come and heal him? So picking up in verse 1, now, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary, her sister Martha. This Mary, was, uh, uh, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, isn't that an interesting way to put that? The one you love is sick. You know what she just did? She played the relationship card. You ever play a card with Jesus and you go, now, Lord, this is me. I'm calling upon you. This is the one who serves you. This is the one who sacrificially gives tithes and offerings. This is the one who has participated in the life-building campaign at Meadowbrook. This is the one who, you know, you you, you play those cards. I need you to pay attention. I, I, I really need you to come through this time. And so she plays the relationship card. The one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. Now, from what I've been reading from the Scriptures, when I read that now, I'm going, "Uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. This is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, this has got to shock the messenger. But when the messenger returns to Martha and Mary... How crazy is this? How perplexing is this? Now, you found Jesus. Yes, I did. And you told Jesus that Lazarus is sick and he's about to to die. Yes, I did. And Jesus is going to hurry back? No, he's not. Well, what's he going to do? I don't know. You're Martha and Mary at this point. You feel loved? You feel cared about? You feel like you've gotten the attention of the Lord to whom you've given your heart? And so he stays there two more days, verse 7. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Two days have passed by, and he goes, okay, now's the time to go. Well, they're not too excited about that idea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going to go back there? In other words, this is a dangerous place. This is probably not the good time for you to go to Judea, to Bethany. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. In other words, now's the time. I I don't know why he didn't just say, now's the time. But anyway, (laughs) verse 11. So after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. 
Now, the disciples are not impressed of the urgency of the matter. Okay, so he's asleep. Somebody else can wake him up. Verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Time out. No, no, no. Let me be really clear. Lazarus is like a little more than asleep. He's dead. And you know what? I'm glad I wasn't there. You've got to be kidding me. You're glad that you weren't there in the time of need? Hearts are aching and breaking. People are crying and mourning. This, you know, beloved brother and member of the community is dead. You're glad you weren't there. Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake so that you may believe. There it is, friends. This was something about redemption. This was something about people being able to come to faith. He said it earlier. This was something about God being glorified and lifted up out of what would happen with this painful circumstance. So let's go to him. And then Thomas, who's a twin, said to the rest of the disciples, this was Mr. Optimism, okay, well, let us go and we'll die with him. I'm with Thomas. This, this sounds like a bad scenario to me. Okay, well, let's just all go die. Who cares? Okay. Verse 17, so on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That is like really late, friends. In the tomb for four days. Do you ever feel like God is late? You're looking for Him. You're calling for Him. You're, you're pleading for Him. You're begging. You're groveling. Where is He? Four days later. Oh, there's a little glimpse of Him. And so... Uh, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother... And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Now, why is she going out to meet him? Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So with what emotion should that be read? Is that an emotion of trust? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Is that an emotion of disappointment? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Is that a, an emotion of anger? If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. How, how is she speaking to him? Verse 22, But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I think it's a statement of faith, which stuns me. The brother's been dead four days, but even now, whatever you ask. And so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, that's a little too abstract. If you already believe in the resurrection, okay, yeah, someday we all die. Everybody resurrects, okay. 
But Martha said, I know he will rise again in the day of the resurrection at, you know, at that time. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Here's the moment of truth. Do you believe this? Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now there's our next confession. None of this makes sense to me. I, I knew you loved us. I knew that God gives you anything you ask for. You could have prevented my brother from dying. He's been dead now four days and he's buried. Our hearts have been broken. But I believe you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. What do you believe? Are you at a point in your confessional life that you've wrestled with these kinds of issues so that your confession is like the confessions of our three case studies. You're looking at Rembrandt's depiction of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. You know the rest of the story. She confesses she believes he's the Christ. He walks over to the tomb. He has them roll the stone back. And then he calls out to Lazarus and tells Lazarus to come forth. And wrapped in grave clothes, Lazarus comes out alive. Now what you may not have paid as much attention to is that immediately thereafter, everything with respect to the mission of Christ went crazy. It was just like the raising of Lazarus was pouring gasoline on the mission of Christ. Everything just went combustible. Because people left and right started believing in Christ because of the raising up of Lazarus. And at the same time, those that had been opponents of Jesus began to rise and just uh, add fuel to the flame that said, we've got to eliminate this guy. This guy's got to go. We must kill this guy. And so it's just like pouring gas on faith and gas on the opposition. The big flame came up out of both camps. And people left and right were beginning to be followers of Christ. People left and right were beginning to be opponents of Christ. And it all accelerated to the point that immediately goes to the cross. This all just propels him into the arrest, the beating, the whipping, and the crucifixion. Now friends, everyone that had become convinced about Christ when he completed his mission were now completely confused. Can you trust him without understanding Everything. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, 
We have lived in a deceived world. The enemy, the Satan, has been let loose upon this world and upon the lives of people in a way that has brought massive deception, lack of clarity about what God is up to and who God is and and what He wants to be about with us. So that if you have any heart bent toward worshiping Him or hoping for salvation, most people come to be uh, convinced that that happens by being good. We're so deceived that even if our heart gets bent toward worshiping Him and hoping for salvation, we have this idea that it must be based upon how good I can be. And the reality is, only one person was good enough to pay the penalty of sin. That's that's the reality. We can't be good enough, only He could. And what God is looking to do is to break through this massive, thick deception so that people can see the truth. And a primary way that He does that is through your testimony. A primary way that God dispels all of the murky, foggy, uh, deceptive stuff of the enemy is to break through it with your testimony. And specifically, your testimony that has some aspect of pain or disappointment or hurt or woundedness to it. Because that serves as something of a a dark backdrop against which you can see who He is and what He's up to. Now, we have stars in the sky all the time. But you can't see those stars until there's a dark backdrop there that help illuminate, help us to see that the stars are in fact there. So it is with the presence of God. So often, God is breaking through the deception of this world through the testimony of your life as He does something that makes for a dark backdrop against which He glows and is seen and is exalted and is glorified. You go, what, what is this thing about God being glorified? Is He just some kind of egomaniac that He's got to get all this attention? Does He not get enough attention? Friends, what's the best thing that God could ever give to a person. The best thing that God could ever, ever, ever give to you or to me is Himself. And so glorifying God is about being able to get to a point where you can find Him, where you can see Him so that you can have Him. That's what His glory is about. It's not about His ego. It's about our need. He wants to be glorified so that we can find Him. So that we can see Him. So that we can draw near to Him. And He's going to be doing that in the lives of people all around you as various circumstances happen in you that provide a backdrop against which His glory can be seen and His redemptive purpose can be accomplished in them, for them. Is that sufficient reason to trust Him? So here's the call today. Like Joseph, 
no matter how difficult this whole string of circumstances has become, will you trust Him and confess He means it for good. Others mean it for evil, but He means it and makes it for good. Like the blind man, will you say, I don't understand all this stuff about Jesus. I just know. I was blind. But now I can see. I can see something of what he's up to. Something of who he is. He's good. Like Martha. I don't get all this. But I know that I know that I know he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the hope of the world. I've tried to encapsulate all of those confessional thoughts into I'll trust Christ without understanding everything. Now, last week, I led you to a point to see if you'd be willing to make a confession. I will obey. I will follow Christ, whatever it cost. Now, almost every person in this room stood and came forward as a point of confession. I will follow Him whatever it costs. And you took up a cross to signify that. Did you mean that? Because if you meant that, one of the costs is that you will trust Him without understanding everything. Let's pray. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, with your heart bent toward heaven. God, we need you so much. There's so much we don't get. There's so much we don't understand. But we're coming to know you. And with our health, with our physical challenges, with our financial uh, lack, with our relational pain and brokenness, we trust You. And God's people agreed and said, Amen.